0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of Mastering Dungeons. I'm Sean Merwin, here with my perpetual co host, Teos Abadia. Hey, Teos, how's it going?
1: Hello, my unstoppable friend. Uh, I am doing well. This weekend, I got to play a board game that's fun for the whole family that we yeah. talked about many episodes ago. The adventure begins? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, um, because uh, my kids are older and we're all very busy, they were not available. So I played it by myself, like the fool that I am. But I was yeah. like, you know what, I just want to know what this is like. Because they got it for me for Christmas and promised to play it with me, but that part hasn't happened yet. Ah. But I sat down and just went through it, and, and I enjoyed it greatly. I thought it was uh, a very fun uh, game for either, uh, you know, for, for a family, for a group of friends that want something very lighthearted. Uh, And I particularly liked how it brought role-playing into it. I thought it was pretty cool. So I had a good time with that.
0: So this was the one that was released with 5e or after 5e launched?
1: I feel like it was released not... It's the one that came out not very long ago. Okay, so yeah. So it's more recent. Yeah, it's a recent one. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And it's basically like you get four tiles and you choose a boss. The group chooses the boss. Right. And then you put down... That's your last tile, which has theme to that boss and and it's all based around the area near Neverwinter so it's like you know do you want to face the beholder then the uh, underdark is the end and then you face mini bosses for each of the other three tiles and it's cooperative you're playing together you're doing things you're getting loot which you can cash in for various items and you um, and and it's a kind of neat system where where you're you're kind of there are a lot of choices so mm-hmm. like on your turn you can be like i'm going to try the probably easy to hit but low damage attack or a little harder but higher damage. Or I'm going to do a thing that involves me describing what I do with something from my backpack. Okay. And so you can be like, I'm going to use my frying pan to, you know, hit the bugbear aside the, the head. And, and then that has results. And, and, and there are a number of things like that that are kind of cool that, that push the players towards uh, being descriptive and coming up with ideas. Oh, nice. uh, a number of the encounter cards are like that, too. Like, they'll say, they even have a party feel. So they'll be like, uh, an awakened shrub comes along your path, and it wants to know what its name should be. And so everybody okay. gets to say a name, and then the DM picks their favorite, and that person gets, you know, coins or something. And it's a neat way to, to do it. I thought it was kind of a yeah. cool way to, to say, hey, D&D is both, you okay. know, this hack and slash thing and it's role playing. So I thought that was cool.
0: Cool. Would you say that then that it would be a good way to introduce non-RPG players to to D&D?
1: Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I think the limit of it is that it's two to four players. With two players, those kinds of scenes don't super work well. Sure. So you kind of really want four for the benefit of the game. Um, And I think that, you know, you you wouldn't probably want to play it three times in a row, right? It's a little too simple and repetitive for that. But it's a fun, short experience that you could have a lot of fun with and be a great thing to break out and introduce to people who are maybe thinking about D &D and they could get a feel for that kind of concept um and it you know like it has things like instead of building your character you know you don't create a character but there are these little cardboard boards that you can swap out so you can be male or female you can choose essentially your subclass i think you have two options for that or four, four options for that and then your attacks you have two cards that you can use for that, and halfway through you can level up, which so it keeps it interesting and, and okay. represents what D and D is about, right? So it's kind of cool. So like
0: s- simpler, more complex, or about the same as like their adventure
1: system games, like Shadowland. Uh, it's not as meaty as a, a gameplay, okay? Right. So, so in that sense, it's simpler. Um, yeah, it's, it's it's simpler. It's lighter. It's okay. um, but but in some ways. Better because the shardalon Char- stuff doesn't really have that role playing angle to it, right?
0: Exactly. Yeah.
1: It's very mechanics focused, very skirmishy type thing, and this is more of a, you know, it's not that it's a role playing game, but it presents those sort of experiences where it's asking you what do you do, and like like one of the rules is that wh- whoever defeats a monster has to say how that last blow happened, right? Okay, how does yeah. it? How do you do it? Right. Awesome.
0: Yeah. let cool. Cool. Well, yeah, well, I review. remember. Yeah, I remember seeing
1: that uh, with you and going, huh? Ah,
0: that, that's a thing
1: yeah and and it was it's inter- interesting because it was a hasbro thing right but has wizards written all over it because of the D and D side right. they don't list any designers which mm-hmm. is like uh yeah. right <laughs> it hurts me so deeply yeah uh, so i don't know who came up with it but i think they did a very good job and awesome. it's really cool cool well with that uh
0: i did absolutely nothing fun this weekend uh, oh. Oh. and we'll probably not do anything fun for several weekends But, hey, if if work is fun, then I'm having a blast.
1: That's a request for everybody to send fun things to Sean via Twitter. Exactly, so I can sit there and longingly look at them.
0: But we do have news uh, coming out, as we always do. The first news, Jason Tondro has joined Wizards of the Coast as a senior game designer. So all of those openings that we've been talking about over the past several months, it seems like. Uh, Starting to get filled, and the first one goes to Jason Tondro. Um, Jason has been working at Paizo as a senior developer on Pathfinder and Starfinder Adventure Paths. Uh, Jason mentioned on Twitter that he is moving from Paizo into this new position at Wizards. And it's a very interesting thread. We have it linked in our show notes, you know, where he talks about, obviously, being very appreciative of his chance to work with Paizo, uh, and all the friends he made and what he learned there. Uh, he's also mentioned that he you know, was a part, uh, a small part, but a part of getting the Paizo Union together. And, uh, But then he goes on to say, <laughs> it's, this is great because now I can uh, buy a house and I won't have to work nights and weekends. Um, yeah. <laughs> and he quoted that as the next game I run, I can run for fun not as a play test or for a future published work. Can you even imagine?
1: <laughs> it was really something because two days before this dropped, I was sort of trying to... I, I put a little mini thread about how I think a lot of times people have this wishful thinking of what non-D&D RPGs will be like. And if you just, you just, know, if, if, if I could just get a D&D player to play this other game, they would never come back to D&D again. And when I sort of posted, I'm not sure that, you know, the data across my years has it all backed that up. In fact, it's very much the opposite. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I even sat down and figured I've played 60 RPGs. Yeah. And, and here I'm still playing d yep. and um And so then people would come back at me and they'd say things about how evil Wizards of the Coast is. And uh, they're mistreating their workers and things. And I'd be like... I don't, can you show me the data you have? Cause I don't, I've never seen this mistreating workers underpaying them, taking advantage of a mangle. And so it was very interesting. Then like two days later, this person to say like, I got a, a job at wizards. Now I can buy a house. Now right. I'm not working nights and weekends. Right. Just, I mean, that is, <laughs> yeah. that tells you right there, the kind of difference going right. on. In yeah.
0: And, and I, you know, I think there's rightfully sometimes an anti-corporate, which is totally reasonable because there are definitely many businesses and many corporations who do not treat workers well, who take advantage of the situation, uh, that, that the workers in, that they're in, that, that, you know, our country and our world allows to happen. And, and I'm cool with that, right? I'm cool with you keeping an eye out for our workers, but to single out one specific corporation and say, Oh, they're horrible without, you know, having any details, uh, is just yeah. It it's yeah. sure. It's it's your right to, to say, and it's everyone <laughs> else's right to ignore or say, yeah. Show show me the money, and uh, and I'll believe you.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, Cobalt Press has also hired a full time graphic designer, Amber Seeger. Uh, Amber's worked on technical publications like overseeing the development of multiple brands uh, in in technical publishing, and uh, also worked as a freelancer for logos and layout for of Flames of Freedom, and others. Uh, lots of work for other Cobalt Press projects, too, it seems. So.
1: Yeah, yeah. again, nice to see um, Cobalt Press you know, expanding the staff, uh, mm-hmm. another good sign for them. She'll be working on layout, social media graphics, VTT graphics, all sorts of uh, projects of that nature. Um, But that's great. So congratulations to Amber and and looking forward to see how that Cobalt Press uh, company continues to grow.
0: Yeah, it's it's great to see RPG companies able to hire full-time people more and more, um, giving hope that there is a market and that there is a support for those companies that give them enough revenue to be able to hire more full-time people.
1: Yeah. I mean, Colab Press chose to to stay on Kickstarter, and and that financially was clearly a very wise platform mm-hmm. choice because their latest has been, I think it's still running, but it, it's it's enormous, right? Um, and you know probably their most successful to date, I believe, and and so they're bringing in a lot of revenue with projects, which hopefully allows them to pay freelancers more, one hopes, and and to do more hires like this.
0: Yeah, it was Tomo Beast Three, right? Uh, I was so. was their last project, we should have reported on it. Let's let's do that real quick. Tome of Beasts, I cannot spell, three. Beast uh, has one S. Okay. Yeah, apparently has a capital E in Beasts as well. Uh, and uh, the Kickstarter. The queue is silent. Yes, exactly. Uh, and the Kickstarter is ended, it ended four days oh. ago. With uh, 9,438 backers and a total pledge of 767,000 dollars. Wow. So definitely, I think they said it's one of their, if not their best, and one of their uh, most yeah. funded Kickstarters. Which is true of Monster Books. I know for mm-hmm. uh, the cult, the <laughs> Ghostfire Gaming Monster Book did did very well as well. So yeah, we we love our monsters. We uh, we D and D DMs and players. It's so. True. Yeah, so good job, Cobalt Press. Good luck, Amber. And uh, we will look forward to great things uh, from Cobalt Press in the future. Uh, Bald Man Games has announced that at their virtual weekends, which they run every month, they will now be offering critical role adventures as well. Uh, they shared the dates for those, which is March 18th through 20th, April 22nd through 24th, Uh, may 20th through 22nd and june 10th through 12th so you've got your weekends booked uh, once a month for the next few months if you choose to and there is a link in the show notes for those uh, games
1: one thing that's really neat that i'm seeing about these virtual weekends is the same dms are running you know time and time again so it's it's as if there's a monthly convention that these Mm -hmm. dungeon masters are going to for all kinds of random people which is like the best way to become a great dm right oh yeah yeah different people every single month several tables um so that's another benefit for you if you're like i wonder if i should jump into this like you will Mm -hmm. probably get really good dm experiences yeah um because these folks are running so many adventures so often yeah um i'm hoping that we can get these critical role adventures in spanish it's not clear exactly how many there will be um, there's still a lot of details that are being worked through, but, uh, but there will be, you know, at least an adventure, if not multiple, and I'm hopeful that we can get our hands on it in time and, and, and work with, uh, Spanish speaking DMS to offer them in Spanish as well. Are you, we'll are see. you going to be DMing any of those? I would glad, I would gladly run one. Um, and we've got a number of people who are signed up to do so in Spanish. So we're just trying to translate all the pages, get them up there. Mm, and nice. once that's all ready, then we can launch it. So whether it'll be for March, we'll see. But we're we'll, we're trying. All
0: right. Cool. And another thing that's great about these weekends is, well, if you're a forever DM and you never get a chance to play, here's your chance to play. Um, yeah. If you if you're not great with online tools and you want to see how other people use them, this is a great way to go. You know, go play a game and maybe afterward ask the DM, hey. You know, you're using Roll20, you're using Fantasy Grounds, you know, whatever tool you're using, how can I best learn to use this? How did you learn? Uh, Can you give me a couple of tips? And, you know, just like playing with other DMs will help you become a better DM, playing with a DM online will help you become a better DM online, if that is something that you uh, choose to do. Yeah, good point. Yep. Uh, Roll20 has a new CEO Enkit Lal, formerly at Google, is now the CEO of roll 20. Uh, Enkit did a, an interview with Polygon. Lots of cool information came out of that. More than 5 million new users joined the platform since the pandemic. Wow. Doubling that number to 10,000 users since 2020. Or 10 million. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, 10 million and, 20, <laughs> and uh, 3 million users uh, were using it in 2018. So you can see that progression from three to five to 10 uh, in just a few years. Uh, They have employees dedicated to users and others to publishers. So to hopefully help answer questions more quickly in the future. And this also speaks to the importance of publishing uh, for their revenue to be able to get content up to sell on Roll20 as opposed to elsewhere.
1: I found that to be the most fascinating thing of this article to me i mean one is just the sheer size and growth you know tripling their employees they said Mm -hmm. but that they are really trying to align this along these you know two axes of users and publishers Mm -hmm. and we've seen that recently like their tweets are promoting different products i think they're starting to realize like this can be a sizable revenue that they get out of cut of so the more that they help promote other people's work the Mm -hmm. more that the People's work sells, and then they get their cut of the royalties. Um, so that's that's a, a an interesting model to see because it it, it could make make the Roll Twenty Marketplace an even better place to be.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, yeah, because I think it's been a little slow in the past. So that so that'll be very interesting to watch to see how that becomes a, a place you want to be. The way that people think of drive-through or other locations,
0: right? And we mentioned last week or the week before that uh, Roll20 was now offering better uh, support for GMs to share their uh, compendium content with, with their users. And uh, Bianca Bickford uh, 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 corrected me. They, you have, they have always been able to do that. Now they're allowing it to be done offline as well. And that's sort of the big thing. Uh, that and and we we missed out on that aspect of it. So I wanted to thank uh, Bianca for yeah, for thanks. correcting me and and uh, getting the news straight there.
1: Yeah, and they listed a number of different uh, benefits that they're adding um, from in a separate article from Morgan Buck, their chief technology officer. She shared how they've they used to have two servers, <laughs> and, yeah. and it was all you know like up or down now right. it dynamically grows to over 150 and adds capacity as it needs there's gonna be a dark mode which of course streamers like because it doesn't give that harsh reflection back on your face um, immersive map and lighting features things like doors and windows and overhead layer that you can add improved image layout and scaling to a tool so you can get going faster Mm -hmm. Uh, to speed up load times, which has been a big request, reducing the memory that's needed by a computer to run it, improve reliability, searchable compendiums and dice rolling on the mobile compendium app, shared compendiums on the website outside the VTT, as you mentioned, printable character sheets. So a lot of things that that are, when you see that list, if you're at all on the tech side of things, you you can understand that there are fundamental changes, and tweaks, right? They're not just doing surface level stuff. They're really going back and, and sort of re-engineering how things should work in order to enable this, right? Whenever you're looking at making things faster, whenever you're scaling servers, like all of that is sort of fundamental shifts that you're looking at. In addition to these smaller addition things, like, you know, let's have a overhead layer or doors and yeah. windows that you can interact with.
0: Right. And really this is like previous, like I said, previously for other news, this is important because what it shows is hopefully that the revenue is there, To be able to improve to get more revenue to hire more people hopefully it's a growth uh industry as a whole and and for Roll 20 in particular to make these tools that are super easy to use and uh you know fun and improve
1: gaming for everyone involved so and strategically if i were roll 20 this is the kind of approach i would take in preparation for whatever this 5.5 brings, because it might bring a continued partnership or it mm-hmm. might bring the end of the partnership. Right. And if it ends and that revenue is, is threatened in some way, then you want to be able to be, have your customers so happy with what you are that yep. they remain with you. Right? right. Uh, and so this kind of investment can pay off in that and that people may say, well, you know, I, maybe I can't get the new book on here anymore, but, I really like what I have now, and i'm going to right. stay here
0: and, and I can't get the book, but I have the book in another form, and it's super easy to create my own campaign, so I can still use the book here yep. uh, and that's you know yep. that's the importance of becoming flexible in terms of ease of use and you know expansive features
1: right and and maybe even to the point where if if wizards were to think about not partnering they might have to think twice because they realize so many people are invested that this would be a very negative PR hit, right? To if folks say like, wait, you're going to pull back from roll 20 and from D and D beyond we've invested a lot there. You can't do that to me. Right? Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's uh, it's an interesting, we'll yeah. It's an interesting <laughs> business conundrum uh, yeah. and issue to keep, keep an eye on, which is one of the reasons we do this. <laughs> Indeed. All right. Uh, Arcadia issue 13 is now out. With three new articles, with of the quality that you've come to expect from MCDM and Arcadia, the first is called Group Maneuvers, by Steve Fiddler with art from Gustavo Do uh, You want to describe that one?
1: Yeah, yeah, that one's pretty fun. So it's it's the idea that you get uh, an, each character receives a number of maneuvers, uh, up to their proficiency bonus. So you get sort of more as time goes on. When you level, you can swap them out. And you get to um, do these maneuvers often as reactions when something happens. So, um, you know, you're kind of concentrating fire on a foe or you're dodging in, in reaction to something a friend did. Um, they're pretty neat. Like they're they're fun, rewarding things. I, I don't know if personally I would want to have them all the time. Unless if I was creating like a very like swashbuckler feel campaign, then this might really be super. I could see a number of one-shots where these rules would just be unbelievably great. Like right. really fun for a convention experience. You know, here are these extra powers, you know, use them. Um but uh but I, I also love them for if you think of you know any number of times where your characters enter the arena. Or they're in a sports game or something like that, like a Strixhaven match or something like that. These kinds of things would be great to represent the teamwork that you're doing together. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not just characters. Monsters get to use them too. Um, and those are pretty fun. I like how some of those work. In fact, as a DM, I would for sure use, have these in my back pocket all the time to use. Yeah,
0: Cool. The second article is Monsters of Wonderland by Kat Kruger with art from Henrik Rosenberg. And these are monsters and creatures inspired by the works of Lewis Carroll. So for all of your Alice in Wonderland... uh,
1: Bandersnatch. Through the Looking Glass,
0: yeah, Bandersnatch. The Hagmoth, the Momrath, the Snark, uh, all come to life (laughs) in stat blocks. And the third article is uh, Poor Undead Souls by Mario Ortegan, And art from Alyssa Serio and Faisal Fikri. Uh, What was this one about?
1: yeah pretty neat. Uh, this is different types of ghosts. Uh, and it it looks at a really nice look at sort of what is their story and how does that come out uh, to to heighten the tale of of encountering them. Um, and so there are just a lot of different um, backgrounds to these ghosts and and then they you get traits that you can apply. Um, to the ghosts themselves, based on this path that you've chosen the jubilant, the restless, the lost mother, the devoted. Uh, and they seem to be drawn from from a number of, of movies and fiction. Like the article starts with a quote by Guillermo del Toro uh, mm-hmm. from The Devil's Backbone. So, really, yeah, it's a great, great article. And nice to see Mario Horta going back again for another uh, Arcadia article. Cat Kruger I mean Steve Fiddler, who may be somebody that you know through layout that he does for like dm's Guild, and so just great to see that the kind of people that Arcada brings in mm-hmm. and even the the editorial, which is by James Intercasso of course, uh, is great where he talks about um, providing content warnings and how they go about it and why it's important just start to finish always a pleasure to read the Arcadia. yep
0: uh. There are new dark sun releases. This this is right in your wheelhouse, Mr. <laughs> Indeed. Abedin. So, uh what's what's going on with the new old dark sun release?
1: I mean, this is it makes me laugh because I used to be part of this dark sun list server back when that was how the internet communicated and we would come up with project ideas and it would take us literally forever to do things and and to to the point where nothing would ever come out. Mm-hmm. Um and this is a project that has been in the making for 20 years. So when Wizards of the Coast went from 2E to 3E, it sort of, it abandoned a number of settings. It just sort of said like, ah, we're not doing this. And they actually went so far as to say, you know what, let's give athes.org the right to be like the Dark Sun website. And let's even give them old files of ours. Have at it, do whatever you want with it. Wow. Which is Kind of unheard of in these days. Uh, But they did that. And so the volunteers have been working on that stuff slowly but surely. They put out a monster book, uh, Terrors of the Deadlands. And now this is the setting book that goes with that. And these are all based on Timothy Brown and others writing up uh, kind of the shell of a project that never became an actual product. Mm -hmm. Um, So this covers this enormous obsidian plains. It's a huge area of land and all of where everybody there is undead and tells their stories and how this land came to be and all of that there. Most of it is just material that you can use. It's setting a version independent, but where there are rules materials, it's 3.5. Okay. Um, so you know, that may or may not work for you, but it's not a big deal because most of it is really about the super cool ideas that are inside of it.
0: Okay. So basically it's been working on, it's been worked on for so long that it's 3.5, uh, (laughs) version
1: stuff, but it's coming out now. I know, yeah, so well, I mean that's <laughs> and, and there are like two more books that they're working on <laughs> off of this series, which is yeah. just hilarious. well, I mean, it
0: what it shows is the dedication to, of these fans yeah. uh, to to get this done and get this out into
1: people's hands who might want this back. It's been the said race. that Athos.org is the reason there was a Dark and e and that's been right. said by people at Wizards, right that they just right. proved to wizards internally there is an audience out there, there mm-hmm. is love for it. And, and, and that led to, you know, that was one of the reasons Darkson was chosen for 4E. So, so yeah. it just underscores how important it is to have rabid fans like this who, who make their presence known and do things like this.
0: Yep. So good work, everyone who had a hand in bringing out that new release, that new old release. <laughs>
1: uh,
0: now, uh, a new, new release is from Andrew Bashinsky. You might remember Andrew as the winner. Of the DM's challenge that Wizards of the Coast ran online, uh, Andrew has released an adventure called The Dragon Witch of Rashomon. It is an adventure designed for three to six characters of level seven, with characters leveling up to eighth halfway through the adventure. It is supposed to run between
1: 12 and 18 hours. Uh, yeah, I opened this thinking, okay, let's take a look at it. Oh, this is Big yeah. And awesomely laid out, really pretty, uh, gorgeous art, and uh, the cover is amazing. I love Rashomon. I once wrote mm-hmm. on a project for you, uh, mm-hmm. a, a living Forgotten Realms adventure that dealt with the witches of Rashomon, and so I, I love that, and in fact, it, one of the first things that made me smile is that Joe Rasso is an editor, and he wrote The Guide to Rashomon, that's yep. out, also on the DMs Guild. Yeah, so, yeah so, but I have not gone through all of this. I just quickly yeah. paged through it. It looks really fantastic.
0: Yeah, it's 87 pages. And I mean, you know, a good portion of that's obviously adventure, but there's handouts and maps and monsters and backgrounds and, and all sorts of things. So, you know, it's a full service adventure plus. Um, it deals with the, uh, the Wicklaren, who who are sort of the witches of Rashomon. Uh and a water Davian scholar who sent an expedition to search some of the ruins. And then, and a dragon is sighted on the border. So all of that comes together to form this, uh, quite lengthy and definitely uh, meaty adventure.
1: Yeah, I, I would highly recommend picking this up. Uh, also because Andrew has been, uh, writing for quite some time it won the dms challenge uh so if someone like andrew can't make it on the dms guild i'm not sure who should so right. <laughs> this is definitely something i'd encourage people to to throw their dollars at and support uh yep. because it's it's really good work and yeah you get all these maps that you can use on your virtual tabletop it's this is really cool
0: yep good good stuff good solid product so uh give it a try and let us know what you think uh in the no longer with us category the wizards archive server is no more i saw this uh david hartledge dm david uh put this up on twitter over the weekend and i heard taps playing in the background so the the, the story is dnd has maintained an archive holding old web pages from even before a fifth edition during the dnd next uh stages when they were putting out thoughts about you know what the next edition would look like some of their design philosophies and so on uh so there were design notes even going back to like how 30 or how 3e was developed and uh so they're gone and i have to admit that i referenced them more than once over the last few years as i was you know think coming up with ideas or doing a lesson on you know, game design, I would go back and take a look. And so I'm sad to see them go. Thankfully, we have the old Wayback Machine uh, <laughs> that, that might save us.
1: Yeah, and we've added a few links in the show notes that um, provide um, kind of starting points you can use to try to pick up various pieces. So like one of them is a, a, a link through the Wayback Machine to the different legends and lore articles that were written um, during the d Next playtest by Mike Merles and others, mm-hmm. and and these are great. Like there's a Rodney Thompson article about the philosophy behind bounded accuracy, and if you're a designer, it's just a great read to understand mm-hmm. what some of these folks can do. And and I mean, I'm always in awe of like the design capabilities and knowledge of someone like Rodney Thompson. And so reading those articles, it, it really, it, it, I always come up with with a lot of Thought and ideas and and just yeah, uh, uh, it, it's it's a really illuminating work when you read these types of of articles. So I, I hope that people will take the opportunity to to hunt some of these down if they haven't read them, mm-hmm. uh, because they are very helpful. And um and then the third edition stuff is fun too because the game was really very different and the philosophy was very different and some of those articles are fascinating. We have you know like David Noonan or somebody mm-hmm. like that you know talking about. Um, how they approach adventure writing or, or box text or anything like that. There are great reads out yeah. there. And we'll see. There was a time before when the server went away and then it came back. So um, who knows? Maybe it can come. But we, just, we all know these things can't be there forever. So find right. the ones you love. Save them as a PDF for reference. You know, yeah. enjoy them while you can. Yep.
0: And last but not least in gaming news, 2C Gaming is looking for 5E copy editor freelancers. Um, they made the announcement via Twitter, and the job is posted on their career page at www.2cgaming.com careers.html. Um, they don't announce the uh, pay rate in the announcement or the job posting, so we can't provide that information. But if you are a 5e copy editor, a freelancer, uh, you might want give that, to give that a glance. Anything else to add, Mr.
1: Abadia? That was a lot of great news. We are lucky to live in this cool hobby.
0: Oh, we it, it is a great time to uh, to be a player
1: of dungeons and dragons. for this is sure why I put on my pants every morning? It's why yep. I bother Sean.
0: and the future's so bright that's why we're <laughs> the future's so bright that's why we're going back and looking at old adventures indeed. <laughs> Last week, we looked at the village of Hamlet and the moat House. And now we are going to rev up Teos's favorite adventure from first edition days.
1: Yeah, we didn't make a joke about how you can't make a omelet without breaking some eggs, but now we're in a place hot enough to fry them.
0: That's true. This is true. So the, uh, the adventure specifically that we're going to talk about this week is I3, the adventure is called Pharaoh. It is part of a series of adventures called the Desert of Desolation series. And it's by a Tracy Hick- Tracy and Laura Hickman. This actually predates Ravenloft. Uh, you know, I3, I4, and I5 came out, and then Ravenloft came out. So uh, it is written way- well before Ravenloft, but you can see by their storytelling and their game design and their adventure design that they are ahead of the curve when it comes to presenting cool stories in ways that characters can interact with that story,
1: yeah, yeah. Uh, Pharaoh is my favorite adventure of all time, um, and this series is my favorite, you know, campaign series. I've run this countless times across my various ages, um, you know, as a high school kid, middle school kid. I loved running these, and 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 playing them i played some of them ran all of them multiple times um, and what i love about them is that they really have evocative feel in in the setting in ways that becomes tangible like there are a lot of things that feel like you know when you go to like an old west town that is just the board painted up like a building and it's propped behind and, and you feel that you feel it's not really three-dimensional yeah and Somehow Tracy and Laura Hickman managed to make these things feel Mm three-dimensional to the players and and empower the DM in ways that make it like that. Um, And so I I really have always uh, enjoyed these, and and I've often uh, updated them over time. So like when 4th edition came out, the first thing I ever did for 4E was I took the beginning of Pharaoh, and I made it in 4th edition and ran it to see how that felt to do that. Yeah.
0: Yeah, my my experience with this adventure, the first adventure I ever played uh, was not Exhibition Barrier Peaks. What was the one with the three weapons? I'm, I'm losing my. Uh, the
1: three weapons?
0: The, yeah, the three weapons that you go search for. Like Whelm and. Plume, uh, Plume of Horrors, uh, White, White Plume yeah, Mountain? Plume of Horrors, right. <laughs> White, White Plume <laughs> Mountain. Uh, I like that. We can mix yeah, them all together. I like know? that. Plume of Horrors. Plume of Horrors is uh, good. Uh, so, yeah, White Plume Mountain was the first ever played. And I didn't play again for a few couple of years. Then when I got back into it again, the, the next adventure that I was able to play was Pharaoh. And mm. you're absolutely right. Uh, it, felt, it felt like a story. It felt like you were involved in something much larger than just go into this dungeon, um, yeah. which, is, which is what caught my eye. And although we never finished it, I immediately, as soon as I could, grabbed a copy, went and read it to see you know, what all the buzz was, and I was just enthralled with it. And it's,
1: it, it is still, I mean, it's important for folks to know that most of the adventures that we'll talk about when we do these series, they are dated. I mean, they right. have to be. Oh, They're sure. old. Yeah. And and we did not know then the things that we know now as designers. So there are actually some parts of the plot that kind of make no sense or, or for them to make sense, you've really got to look at the details to weave it together. Right. Uh, but even, even saying that, compared to anything of their day, right. they rose above the rest, right? And, and, they, and, and they are what helped us get to where we are today. Very true. And so you can take the best of these ideas and apply that modern filter to it. And you end up with the best of both worlds because they have these really neat ideas and really neat situations. And and all of the sort of raw stuff you need is there ready for you. Um, And you just have to sand off the rough bits and and patch here and there and you're good.
0: Yep. (laughs) Yeah. And this is one of the first adventures I can remember where it is meant to be part of an ongoing series. So there are things mentioned in the adventure that don't come into play in that adventure, but it will be important in the, the follow-up adventures.
1: And that's a rarity because a lot of times the way the production writing schedule worked back at TSR, it might be an entirely different crew writing the next one. Right. and And what they chose to see as important from part one to part two would be really just anybody's guess. And this is a case where... It really does all add up. Again, it might be a little hard to read, but it is all there. The idea of these star gems and what they do was something that was planned from the beginning, and, or at least they use all the pieces from the beginning to all the way to the end. Right.
0: So could you give me a very high-level summary of what Pharaoh is about and what the entire trilogy is about?
1: Yeah, so this is all about an ancient prophecy around a cursed area of a desert land. And um, the, uh, the land was once fertile and green. It fell apart, and now it's cursed and terrible, uh, and it, it even growing, becoming worse. Um, and you are thrust as adventurers out into this land to deal with this curse. You must explore the pharaoh amun res tomb, which is an immense pyramid with a trap-filled interior. And then in later adventures, you realize that one of the first things you probably did was release an Efreeti, and this is part of the prophecy, and the Efreeti is getting ready to destroy all of the land, uh, along with an army of dangerous cultists. And you travel through old cultist-ridden ruins and to a sea of glass, which is a super cool area, to a tower frozen in time and beyond to uh, reverse this uh, curse, uh, stop the Efreeti, and find why why these star gems were of import. Mm-hmm. Um, the answer may astound you yes. <laughs> and maybe leave you a little surprised. Yeah. Really? That's it? Okay. Yeah. But um, it, it has a little bit of a gotcha element or, or not gotcha, but sort of like, a you know, the answer is you needed to wake me up to to, to end the threat with a wave of my finger. Right. Um, that isn't as climactic as you'd like it to be, uh, but it's very much in light with sort of 80s storytelling.
0: Sure. <laughs> so. Well, the adventure itself is 32 pages long. Um, it's for six to eight characters of levels five to seven. And you may say six to eight, wow, that's a lot. That actually wasn't a lot compared to what some of the adventures were like from, from eight to 12. Or you know, yeah. They expected a lot of players sometimes. So in that sense, it's sort of actually less characters than, than uh, n- uh, other adventures claim to be able to support. So, the introduction is actually kind of interesting slash silly. Uh, but uh, yeah, go, you, I mean, you go ahead and give the intro, and I'll give mine. So, Noah, Noah
1: Adventure has done what this adventure boldly does, right. where it says that you're in trouble because you short sheeted the wizard's bed and did petty pranks on their room. Right. And reading it, it's kind of hard to tell whether you're falsely accused or the assumption and and statement is, no, your characters did this. But that's why you're being thrown into the desert to deal with this. Yeah. So to
0: to get rid of the details and just to say what's the crux of the of the adventure, it is you are being sent into this desert from a land to the north. So essentially, the desert is south of these mountains. You are from a land north of the mountains that is not desert. And you are being sent through the mountains into the desert uh, by the king of the land. And you are, whether rightly or wrongly, being accused of something. And,
1: and I think in later, it, later adventures, it, it, it makes it, or it states that you were wrongly accused. But I yeah. think the beginning one, yeah. it's not entirely clear from the read.
0: Because it starts with the, the, uh, the herald of the king reading a pronouncement about you. And, and you wake up, yeah,
1: surrounded by soldiers.
0: Right. Basically, the the pronouncement, and you, it's like read aloud text. The pronouncement says there are bandits that are coming from the south, and you know, pillaging our villages. And oh, by the way, you have been accused of doing you know these tr- pranks to this wizard, so therefore you are being sent south. Now, when I read it, I thought it was you are being accused of being the bandits Uh and and that actually made sense because Mm -hmm. then it goes into the silliness of it right so it's like you you are the bandits that have been uh been doing wrong oh and you're also accused of short sheeting the the wizard's bed and leaving a uh female companion in his tent when he was bringing back another female companion and yelling ensued, right? All this sort of goofiness. And so, to me, it worked because it's like, you are a bandit. Oh, and you're also all these... So it's like, you're realizing, oh, we're being wrongfully accused and sent off by the king in order to do a job for him. Uh, And so you can obviously tweak that. You can play it that way. You could tweak the beginning in all sorts of ways to make it work for whatever story... Uh, you're trying to tell or whatever group that you're running it for. It could be this pronouncement. And then the herald says, oh, and by the way, you know, the king thanks you for this doing this. Here's some money. And you do get money. You do get gear. You do get things offered to you.
1: Um, and they're fun choices. Like, uh, right. do you choose a a camel or a horse? Right. I remember we, we spent forever wondering, well, what should we choose? You know, what do we right. know? And the he was like, you don't know anything about them. I'm like, oh, okay, I guess a camel, I
0: don't know. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> so you know, it, it, is, it is an introduction. It may not be the strongest introduction for mm-hmm. all groups. Um, but you can definitely spin it in a sort of fun and silly way. You can make it deadly serious. But the point is you're being sent into the desert with – resources, but those resources will not last forever. Um, right. And you can't come back through the mountains because there are guards there waiting to make sure you don't. So essentially you are being hired, whether by force or by choice, to, uh, to go into the desert and figure out what the curse is, figure out who these bandits are, bandits, and right. solve the problem.
1: And one of the weird things about this adventure, and, and also indicative of how it really is a trilogy, Is that this first adventure does not have any bandits. Right. The bandits appear in the second adventure and are actually these cultists. Um, But in the first one, you meet a number of dervishes. Right. And the dervishes are painted with, uh, you know, an antiquated brush as these sort of zealots, but not always. It's really inconsistent. At times, painted as sort of religious zealots, other times as being sort of very. normal people who are who are uh following up on the traditions of these old of the old pharaoh Mm -hmm. Uh, and but but it 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 creates a unclear picture of exactly who you're meeting with and that's one of the things that this adventure really needs in terms of modernization is to really think about who the actors are the Mm -hmm. factions and and make it clear who they are so in this adventure in pharaoh you do not meet these bandits Right. The people you do meet are people who are who have dedicated themselves to preserving this temple and prepare, and preventing it from being robbed right you come in uh, and and you, when you approach these areas, you will want to go in and hopefully not tomb raid but end the curse mm-hmm. and so a lot of it can actually be great role playing around how you convince them that you are on the side of good and they should let you in and probably right. even help you. The, right. the way it was presented and the way the game was back then, most groups, we just slaughtered everybody we encountered. Right. If yep. there was any kind of opposition, we beat them up. But the adventure does have potential for role-playing, but it's not particularly strong.
0: So. Yeah. And part of the issue is also you're introduced to these dervishes and you aren't told what they are. In the back of the book, when it gives a stat block for them, it says that they do not worship any particular God or deity or Pantheon, even their sole purpose is to preserve all religions. Mm -hmm. And knowing that at the beginning would be super helpful. (laughs) Uh, And also knowing it as a character, because if this is actually their job, then you would think that they would be all over the world also mm-hmm. protecting temples where the characters right. have been before. Uh, exactly. And, and and their alignment is given as lawful neutral. Uh, so as Teo said, it's sort of like a role-playing, a role-playing challenge, if you will, because they're not evil. They're not good. They are just there to follow a very strict law. And so to paint them as one way or another sort of taints the character's choices. Mm-hmm. Right? If they're presented as evil right away, then it's just going to be going and slaughter
1: them. And so, especially when the yeah. first room, they're going to be like, you know, invaders, despoilers of the temple, and they're going to attack right. you because that's sort of their, their, you know, this sort of zealotry paintbrush that they, that's used. But what it means is if you modernize this, the adventure is even better than it was before because right. now you have this complexity there and, and the this interesting piece where you have to, at various points, Explain yourself to these groups and win them over, and then they can actually tell you a lot. And and there are places, like in in one of the early temples, where they'll say, like, yeah, our leader went into this urn of fire and has never returned. And that's a really important clue because you could walk around aimlessly trying to figure out where the secret door is, and this helps you get that.
0: Yep, for sure. So, you know, it's it's a problematic uh, introduction as written, but you can easily fix it in a lot of different ways uh the adventure is also meant to highlight exploration mm-hmm. uh so the beginning of it is wandering through the desert and then the the tomb section the the pyramid section is wandering through the the tomb so it gives you a lot of great room for that exploration and resource and, and there management some,
1: and there's some just beautiful uh, for for what the era was it's really really well done how these encounters play out and, and how they're set up. So there'll be things like, you know, pillars engraved with runes and uh, and, and a, a trail in between, right? Mm-hmm. And so the, then you read them and the question is, should we go in between these two pillars? This giant right. desert, yeah. you got these two pillars. Do I go through the middle or do I go around them? Right. And of course, things happen depending on which of those choices you make. Um, and there are some great, I mean, we lost half our horses in this scene. And, uh, and then there are things like... Um, Yeah, just neat wandering monster encounters and and some really, yeah, some really great fun here. And and I think the kind of thing that you read today and you become inspired to add a few more touches to these and and Mm -hmm. bring them up to modern standards.
0: Yeah. So before we delve down into the individual sections, there's also a notes to the dungeon master section. And this is the first adventure I remember where they really took a user manual approach to the layout. Uh, The text in each area calls for subheadings for things like description, play, monster, character, treasure. So when you read the play the description, right, that just gives you the box text, then the play section says, if characters defeat monster, they have access to treasure, but must contend with trap. And then Mm -hmm. below that is lore. And so it really divides this up and makes it easy for the DM to parse that information and basically much easier to run. And and I also love this because, as a designer, if you have a format like this, it prompts you to think about m- more details. It prompts you to think: Can I make this cooler? Can I add one more thing that mm-hmm. would really, you know, turn this encounter right up to uh, eleven? Yeah. So so that was the first time I remember seeing that layout, and I
1: love it. <laughs> Yeah, so then in uh, the—that's a good point because they—that's an approach that you know people are still toying with, and they were doing that way back then. Yeah. Um, So in the in the desert, one of the interesting things that happens is you find a statue, and when you go to inspect it, it's actually the top of a sunken dome, Mm -hmm. and there is a chance—and this being before people had ability checks—there is a chance that you will fall through. Percentile chance, you fall through this dome and into the area below which is sort of very interesting because if no one were to fall through then you never do what's inside which is fundamental to the whole storyline mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> that's just such all yeah. the design uh, aspect um but yeah the classic design problems but inside you fall in on the slope of sand that's in this crack dome that leads down to a platform and now huge spiders attack uh And some of them will then, some stay behind, some move onto the sand to fight you. But there's no implication of being on the sand because this is an era behind skill checks. So when I modernized this to 4th edition, I had the spiders just appear on the sand and I had the sand shift. Mm -hmm. And so it became a dynamic, movement-rich fight where it mattered sort of how you moved around on the battlefield and whether you could stand your ground. Or if you wanted to, use the sliding to kind of help you. Um, Then there's a bunch of trap-filled rooms with magical walls, and this is very AD&D style, where there's like a firewall, and maybe you can do a cold spell so you can walk through, uh, or there might be a way to deactivate it. Um, This is the kind of example of how to update that you can use the uh, DMG or Xanathar's rules for trap damage and DCs. Um, you can bring in skills, of course, which is super important to figure out how to bypass things, either whether it 's some sort of a a, a knowledge that you 're unlocking you know something like Arcana to realize what would counter this or if it 's something like disarming um, but there there are enough op- opportunities here that you can make the d c s fairly high but provide different opportunities so the whole party gets involved. Mm-hmm. Your treasure at the end of all this is a basically a, a like a you know a lamp that when you open it. And Afridi escapes, gives you no reward, and mocks you. Mm-hmm. And you're kind of like, well, okay, that was strange. Let's leave this place, I guess. Yeah. And, but story wise, we said this Afridi actually goes, is now, he was locked away here on purpose and is now going to start up this huge army that will destroy all of the land. Mm-hmm. So you just re- released your nemesis, um, which yeah. I think is very interesting.
0: Right. And c- can you play the rest of the adventures without that? Sure. Somebody else released the Afridi. It's, it's not a big deal, but to have the characters do it sort of gives them an impetus to then be hooked into the story
1: and want to finish it. And creates fun role-playing things where like, I remember when we went to the Oasis of the White Palm, which is the second adventure and you know, the, the, the sheik who's there is talking to us about this horrible Afridi that someone loosed upon the land. And we're all like, Hmm, yeah, that's unfortunate. Oh, how surprising that that happened. We hadn't heard. (laughs) Yep, exactly. Hmm. I wonder who could have done that. Uh,
0: There are a couple other areas in the desert. There's the remains of a camel fry. If you've never (laughs) had a camel fry, you don't know what you're missing. Uh, (laughs) a pool where the characters, a good aligned character has a vision and then can ask, uh, questions that will get a yes, no answer. Uh, that sort of thing. But the trigger for the adventure itself is the run in with the ghost, if you will, of Amonri.
1: Yeah. And he, he pleads you to enter his tomb and end the curse upon him because he made bad decisions in life. Uh, and the only way to stop this is to go in and essentially successfully reach the end of his tomb, which is a very hard challenge to do. Mm -hmm. Um, and what's you know again story wise you're here for bandits there's nothing here about bandits right but now you've got another hook that stopped you which is this ghost and so that's that's sort of the switch plot wise that you have to be aware of and, and maneuver into make this important right uh, and and that maybe this you know it's unclear what impact this has at all on bandits or the Afridi, but you, you feel like you should and the reality is it's actually hugely important. Uh, because there are these star gems that are in, uh, you, you get one in, I, I believe in the sunken city yep. and then there's one in the tomb, one or two, and you must get all three eventually. I think the third one's in the second module and you, you must get all three in order to carry out whatever this prophecy is. And you don't super know that initially, but that's important to sort of start heading them in that direction.
0: Yep. And that's why it's important. Before this even starts, before the characters even go into the desert, when they're still dealing with the king and the king's herald, to emphasize this curse, that this desert is continually expanding, and that people are worried that it may cross the mountains and start affecting the lands to the north, then it's like, oh, the curse, okay, we know about this curse, we need to try to end it.
1: Yeah, I think that's important. Establishing the curse up front then then gives it a dual purpose and makes it rich. And in fact, you could even say, like, you know, maybe the curse and the bandits are related, right? And having that up front makes it more interesting. So then we get to the pyramid. And, boy, the pyramid is confusing if you don't. You made a note here, right? Yeah. You have to look at the art. Yeah. the
0: I, I was reading the very first box text where you see the pyramid for the first time. And it's it's all feet, you know. It's 754 square feet at the base, rising to 700 feet. It's got four surfaces. It's the wall surrounding it is five feet wide and 20 feet tall. And I'm like five feet wide. That's the real. Oh, they mean five feet deep, not five feet wide. Yeah. Cause that's a, just a, that's a very small wall. Uh, if it's five feet wide and 20 feet tall, you could just walk and, around that bad boy.
1: Uh, and there's some great research that took place here because this pyramid does resemble, you know, the ones right. in, in Egypt where you often had something out front. So it's not mm-hmm. just the four sided pyramid. Right. It is uh, also a wall around it mm-hmm. and connected to that wall is this temple. So the first thing you go in is this temple. And if you if you look at the map, you have to kind of combine the looking at the map with reading it right. to realize there's an outside temple mm-hmm. that then connects through a passageway to the outside of the one side of the pyramid where there's now a steps going up and a tunnel going in. Correct. And so you've got to go through the temple unless you're going to salt the wall or something like that. You've got to go through the temple to get into the pyramid itself.
0: Yep. And, uh, yeah, so that was just one note. The other thing as, as I read through the pyramid, so just overall, um, uh, there are a lot of places in there where there's just a trap in a room and the trap will do like 2d12 damage and that's it. That's all it does. And for first edition, that could be a big deal because it was so hard to regain hit points yeah. and the resources were so important for fifth edition. That could, you know, one short rest and that goes away, even if you hit everybody in the party with it. Uh, yeah. So you may have to adjust things like that, to either ramp up the damage to make it something that is a threat, or combine it with something else uh, to to make it more than just sort of a funny story or an annoyance.
1: Right, that's a good point. Yeah, you can always uh, consider also some sort of time lapse to prevent or something that prevents them from re from um, healing. Mm-hmm. So if on this level they find that you know, uh, they cannot take a short rest. Right. Right. Then that will change how they experienced a particular level or Mm -hmm. if their healing were to work differently, you know, then that would heighten things. So you can always think about those sorts of trips, tricks when you're, um, updating these kinds of situations Mm -hmm. or as Sean said, you add more punch to the hit so that the hit means more and it really is dwindling resources. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. And then the first level ends in so you get past this temple and hopefully are that's more role playing than slaughter uh and you and you learn a little bit about what's going on in, in the pyramid um and how difficult it is to get through it and that there are in fact some some people in there including some raiders that are in there so there are the actual who are i guess cultists um but but it's hard to tell when someone's from which camp um and so you have to think through that as you're dming this um, so you get into this, what's called the the map labels it the plundered tomb, which is a false tomb. Mm-hmm. And when you reach the end with an already open and uh, pilfered sarcophagus, there is no obvious secret door in that room. Right. And in fact, the secret door to get to it is way back earlier in that same level, yep. kind of far enough back that you wouldn't expect it past all the secret doors. It's not even where you'd think. Right. So that can throw you off because I think most players think, well, I, you know, if I've gone through two secret doors, somewhere in there is, is where... I need to find it. And instead, it's way back where you might have discounted. In fact, you might have had a role-playing encounter in this particular place. And that's yeah. that whole fire thing that I was talking about. Yeah. So that's where the role-playing really does matter. If you skip past that, you, you may not have what you need to go back. You may never think to go into this burning urn. Yeah. So.
0: Th- that's that's a, just a symptom of a larger problem uh, with a lot of adventures of this era, which is sort of trying to trick the players into not finishing the adventure. The Tomb of Horrors had that. Mm -hmm. Um, But there's also a lot of places where, uh, well, like Teo said, you had a percentage chance of not even finding this cool thing that happens in the desert. Uh, You have a 30% chance to read the writing on the walls (laughs) in here. Uh, Some of it etched into the the actual walls. Some of it, I think, graffiti. But it's like every room, you have a 30% chance to read the writing just let them read the writing, right? It's cool stuff. It's yeah. clues, it's hints, it's lore. Don't stop them from from being able to play and finish the adventure. Uh, so if they do get to a point where it's a dead end and they can't figure out how to get from this false level, this false tomb level into the actual meat of the adventure, get, give them clues or have just an NPC come right out and tell mm-hmm. them. Uh, Because there are clues, but it's not obvious.
1: And one of the things you could do is to, which is a technique I like to use a lot in in adventure design, is to include somebody that can act as your DM voice. Mm -hmm. Um, That could be, for example, uh, one of the priests here could perhaps cast a spell to maintain a tenuous connection with you. Mm-hmm. So that some number of times you can reach back to them and uh, ask questions, receive input. Uh, or it could even be Amun-Re the Pharaoh, that ghost, could perhaps mm-hmm. uh, you know, touch one of the players and create a link to them that is, again, tenuous. It's not always there, can't be abused, but they can at times speak up and provide information. That can help you then have a way to nudge players through these kinds of experiences.
0: That would save them from searching the 12 rooms of the false tomb Mm -hmm. level and then, you know, finding dust and and a few coins and then
1: being done. And the other thing is you have uh, a number of divination spells in the game and a lot of times as dms we're sort of set up to say no to them is almost like the way we feel like we must uh, act because it can damage things but in adventures like this where there are so many choices and choices can paralyze us or, or create bad boring play where we endlessly search 12 rooms uh, this is where you want them to really work right and reward players for casting those yeah
0: so we're at a point now Teos, where we could talk about each of the levels or we can mm-hmm. wait till next week and really dig in. Did
1: you have? Yeah, maybe preference? we dig in and cover the, the levels next week. We will do that
0: then. So, come back next week for our the true tomb. Yes, our uh, continuation of the look at Pharaoh, where we will dig in and maybe even you know, talk some five E conversion as well. Cool. Awesome. Thank you all for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Mastering Dungeons. And thank you to our patrons who give us a little bit each month to keep us going. If you would like to support the show by, become a, by becoming a patron, you can go to patreon.com MMP. Teos, you are always busy at work on your blog, looking at various things. Uh, where is that blog and where can people follow you?
1: Thank you. Uh, you know, the last thing I did was put up our index of all our Mastering Dungeons episodes covering fizzband So if you want to know how to get to a particular you know, class feature or a section of the book, mm-hmm. uh, you now can hear us there. So that's at alphastream.org. And from there, you can find all the other things about me, including my Twitter, which is at alphastream. How about you, Sean? Uh, you
0: can find me on Twitter at Sean Merwin. You can follow the podcast Twitter feed at MasteringDND. Uh, we are also on YouTube on the Misdirected Mark channel, so you can leave us comments via YouTube. Yeah. Mastering Dungeons is a Misdirected Mark production. So, Teos, now that we have braved the desert and entered the tomb of Amonri, what are we going to do now?
1: Well, I think that we're gonna fling things at the players via monkeys. Stay tuned for next episode.